Good afternoon and welcome to the 139th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we're gonna to talk about Latinos in the United States in the midst of the pandemic with Washington Post reporter, Arlise Hernandez. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 1st, 2020, there are 1,015,815 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, there are 7,245,228 cases of COVID-19, up from 7,216,828 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 207,211 deaths in the United States from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 206,615 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Austin Funeral Home Matriarch Dies of Coronavirus. This appeared in the Austin American Statesman. August 12th by Asher Price. For decades, Lois Villasenor had helped Latino families coping with the death of loved ones. Recently, the East Austin funeral home she and her late husband founded in the late 1950s has adopted funeral rites, limited masked services with burials often viewed through car windows for the age of the coronavirus. In late July at age 87, Villa Senor herself died of COVID-19 related complications, one of scores of coronavirus deaths last month. This is back in August, so previously in the summer in Travis County at the height thus far of the pandemic in Texas. Her service, like so many others nowadays in this time of remote grieving, was live streamed. Villa Senor had long been retired from Mission Funeral Home. She'd been living at home, suffering from dementia at the time of her death, according to her son, Charles Villasenor II, who now runs the business. But her death signifies another rent in the fabric of fast-changing East Austin. Charles Villasenor II said there was no funeral home catering to Latinos when his parents arrived in the city. They filled the void, building one on East Cesar Chavez Street, then known as East First Street. More than 4,500 people died of COVID-19 in Texas in July, more than half of the total deaths in the state since the first Texan was confirmed to have succumbed to the virus in March. And the disease has disproportionately affected Latinos. Statewide, Hispanics make up 39.7% of COVID-19 cases, those statistics reported in August, in keeping with their portion of the state population, but they make up 51.4% of fatalities from COVID-19, according to statistics from the Texas State Department of Health Services. In Travis County, 
which is 33.6% Hispanic. 51% of the cases are Hispanic and 48% of the deaths are Hispanic, according to Austin public health figures. The factors and the discrepancies are many, experts say. Fewer testing sites in poorer communities of color, the cost of testing and the stigma associated with a positive test, limited access to healthcare generally, lack of health insurance, fear of losing income and for those living in the country illegally, fear of deportation. Lois Villasenor was well looked after by her family and at home medical attendants, her son said. She was born in Cuero to a migrant farming family picking cotton in her early years when she was a teenager National news regarding the unfair treatment of Latinos by funeral parlors unfolded about an hour away in the small town of Three Rivers. When the body of Private Felix Longoria, who had been killed in the Philippines during World War II, was returned home to Three Rivers in the late 1940s, the local funeral parlor refused to hold a wake, claiming the whites would not like it. Longoria could be buried only in the separate Mexican section of the cemetery. Eventually, after a campaign by his widow, then freshman Senator Lyndon B. Johnson got involved, arranging a burial for Longoria with full military honors in Arlington National Cemetery. Lois and her husband, Charles L. Villasenor, who had trained in the funeral business in Houston, struck out for Austin in the late 1950s. We came to Austin and looked around and we chose East Austin because we wanted to be part of the Hispanic community, she told the Austin Chronicle in 2004. We saw there was a void in funeral services available to the families here. This was way back when the bodies would lie at home. Mission Funeral Home was the first to build a parlor so Latino families could gather at a funeral chapel to pay respects to loved ones. In 1961, she was one of only a handful of women to graduate from a mortuary college in Houston. She was the first Latino woman to serve on the Texas Funeral Service Commission as a 1989 appointee of Governor Bill Clements. She also served on the boards of Catholic Charities and Latino political groups at one point as the president of the local council of the League of United Latin American Citizens. The matriarch of the family, she was known for her impeccable dress and her sense of adventure, at one point obtaining a pilot's license. She liked taking day trips to San Antonio to visit the Market Square and to dine at Mitierra, all the while keeping the books at the business. Her husband of 37 years died in 1991 and she continued at the helm until her son succeeded her in 1992. My mother understood that you never know a family's grief until it happens to you. That understanding now comes full circle for me, said Charles Villasenor II. Today, that includes the increasing challenges of COVID-19 related deaths. Funerals for families whose loved ones suffered from COVID-19 have been all consuming, but my mother would have wanted Mission Funeral Home to continue providing the same level of compassionate care for others that we are now providing to our own beloved mother, he said. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation and let me introduce my guest. It's a real honor to speak to Aralise Hernandez. Aralise Hernandez is the Texas correspondent for the Washington Post covering the southern border region. She has spent the last half year writing about the ways the coronavirus has impacted the intimate lives of Americans in ways both obvious and unseen. Prior to coming to Texas, she spent years covering natural disasters, protests, mass shootings, and political upheaval domestically and briefly in Venezuela. Hernandez has spent her career covering communities of color and the impact of social and government policy on vulnerable populations. Aurelise, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you for having me. 
Well, I appreciate you making time to talk to us today. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just finding out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Yeah, I'm in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Texas has seen its uh, hospitalizations go down. Uh, well, you know, cases are increasing, but not at the same clip. Uh, we don't have the same positivity rate that we were, you know, about two months ago. But I think uh, there have been repeated issues with the reporting here in Texas. And every so often, particularly here in uh, like Bear County recently, where San Antonio is, um, had some 2,000 cases that were part of a backlog. Um, and, and that keeps happening. So getting a good sense of what is actually happening in the various communities around Texas has been a challenge. You have a handle on why those statistics have been difficult to get a hold of or why they're uh, reported in uneven ways? Well, when I talk to uh, the leaders of public health agencies in these various jurisdictions, what, mind you, you know, more than 200 counties across Texas, each with sort of their own way of collecting this data and siphoning it uh, to, to the state, not each county has the same capacity as others. Like you're not going to see, uh, you know, Travis County have the same problems that Willacy County, you know, down near the border is going to have, and, and it's not going to be as sophisticated or as quickly, you know, death statistics that we know are, are lagging indicators anyway. Um, the, the other problem is getting the data from the testing sites. So if it's like a private, uh, you know, clinic that is using antigen tests, well, you know, those get funneled into the public health agency, but the public health agency then has to figure out, okay, which one of these are antigens, which one of their PCRs, um, you know, is this a unique marker for a person? Are these repeated tests? Like I myself have had six tests since the, you know, the, the pandemic happened. Thankfully, wow. come out negative each and every time. But those are the kinds of challenges that public health agencies are facing. Six tests. Wow. I'm glad that you've been negative every time. But the kind of work that you do, you're finding yourself in situations where you're constantly interacting with, with folks. And I guess... That's just the nature of your work right now. Is that normal for journalists at this time to have had to so many tests? Um, yeah, no, I think most of my colleagues who are part of sort of the, the group of correspondents who are, are working around the country, we're putting ourselves in situations where we know, uh, you know, we could catch the disease. Um, and, and though we're taking specific kinds of precautions, like, you know, what hotels we stay with, whether we drive to specific places, um, they're still, you know, if we're covering protests, which I have, if you're covering Trump rallies, which I have, um, you know, you're putting yourself in situations where you could be exposed. And so to, to keep everyone around you safe, uh, we get tested pretty frequently. So I know your beat is Texas, but I, I want to ask you sort of a broad question as we're starting out. If you can just characterize a little bit of the experience of Latinos in the in the pandemic, how are they faring where have the health impacts of the pandemic been worst in the country? Yeah, so uh, not well. Uh, Hispanics are not faring very well at all uh, with this pandemic. Uh, you know, African-Americans by far have it worse, as do indigenous Americans, Native Americans. Um, but uh, Hispanics 
in, in particular represent a huge number of essential workers. And so when governments, you know, were shutting down businesses, a lot of these families, uh, and this is true for anyone of sort of a lower income bracket, didn't have the luxury of working from home. They still had to go to work. And in some cases, you know, there were precautions taken in those specific workplaces like construction sites and, and, and whatnot, but not everywhere, right? A lot of those guidelines, particularly here in Texas, were uh, were guidelines and not enforceable in, in any way. And so you have to trust businesses were, were, you know, taking those steps. And in some cases, they weren't. Right. Uh, it's been really, really awful in the border region uh, of Texas, of the U.S.-Mexico border, not just in Texas, but across sort of the 1,200 miles of border um, because of the you know, international commerce that goes through there. That's part of it. Right. The border is shut down right now, but also because of the, you know, the way historically uh, inequities have played out in those regions with regards to uh, health care access. With regards to resources, uh, to for you know, there's one hospital in, for example, in Star County that you, for people who live miles and miles apart in the border region. Mind you, this is a rural part of the border region, but there's still a lot of people out there um, where this that that serve this hospital, and they were quickly overwhelmed uh, in a matter of weeks post Memorial Day. Um, when I traveled to the border, I guess it now was a month ago. I mean, you could feel the death in the air. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It, it. Like, it's so much grief. Everyone knew someone or two or three people who were close to them. We're not talking just friends. We're talking about cousins and aunts, and in some cases, mothers and fathers who had passed um, in because of COVID. Just to, to follow up on that a little bit, I mean, so many reasons in what you're describing, the overrepresentation of Latinos among essential workers, lack of healthcare access in many, communities, I think we'll talk about the situation of undocumented workers and problems of people unwilling or fearing to come forward and go to the clinic. Um, just a question, sort of a basic question about how the statistics are logged before we leave this issue, because, you know, for African-Americans, it's, it's a racial category that's used in public health statistics. It, is that reporting done for Latinos as well? I mean, it's a broad category. Right, and I'm sort of curious about how people who who self-identify as Latino show up in the statistics, as opposed to say whites or African Americans. No, you're absolutely right. It's a huge challenge to try and uh, put Latinos all in the same box, or to try right. and, and count them because they do represent different racial and, and sometimes ethnic categories. Um, you know, and there are studies to show that with each successive generation of Latino Americans, they identify more and more as white. They don't self-identify uh, separately as Hispanic or Latino. Um, so in any case, it's, you, there's always going to be that asterisk with, with the numbers with Latinos because there are so many people, particularly in Texas, that uh, just do not identify as Hispanic. They might be third, fourth, fifth generation Texan. Um, and they've, you know, chosen to identify in a, in a different category. Um, so it's it's incredibly challenging. And some people who just, you know, who are who may be mixed, right, and might identify as, you know, black instead of Hispanic, whereas you know both things comprise their identity. It's 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 tricky business.
Absolutely. Well, I, let me, you mentioned your um, reporting in the Rio Grande Valley, and I want to make sure everybody, um, well, I've, I've tweeted it out and I'll send it out again. The story that you reported on August 24th from the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, I just want to read a couple lines from that. You said the region of more than 1.2 million people in four counties accounts for approximately 15% of all the state's virus-related fatalities. Though the governor has surged resources, the pandemic has plunged the valley into a state of perpetual grief. We just can't take another emotional step. You had an interview with Yvonne Melendez, who said that Hidalgo County's health authority and a practicing doctor in McAllen, there's not been one day in the last three months that someone hasn't asked me, did you hear who died? I, I wonder if you could just say, a bit more about reporting that story and you know you as you were saying a minute ago as you headed down to the valley there was a sense of death in the air that's the world that was described to us here i'm in new jersey in new york and new jersey in april but you're telling this story in august yeah no early on in the pandemic the, the rio grande valley you know did not have many cases at all uh in fact uh, they were they acted pretty quickly. And I think in part because the health authorities and the politicians down there knew how vulnerable their population was. But that sort of, that change and, and you know, and they were reading the stories, the horrible stories that were coming out of New York City and New York State and, and, and the way that it was taking families, right? But around Memorial Day, if I remember correctly, the governor of Texas um, had announced that some of the early steps that they had taken to uh, mitigate the, the effects of the virus or the spreading of the virus would end and the reopening would begin in Texas. And it was at that time that, we, I mean, you can make a direct line from the days that the governor had announced these uh, the reopening to um, what happened in the Rio Grande Valley. It basically signaled to people that things were okay, that you, know, you could return to normal and nothing could have been farther from the truth. At least we see that now, right? Um, it, Reporting that story was actually probably one of the hardest of my career, and I've I've covered, you know, the Pulse night shoot nightclub shooting, which was horrible. Um, Dayton, uh, the Hurricane Maria, but I mean, the, the how do I explain? It? It's like everywhere that I went, there was some sign of some, you know, of how horrible things have gotten in in the valley. You know, I drive by a graveyard, and there were dozens of families that were all grieving at the same time. Or, you know open graves or you drive by the hospital and there are people in the parking lot you know praying on their knees and and using a speaker system and praying out loud so that hoping people could hear them uh, if you you know got to a funeral home uh, you could see them working at all hours throughout the night you know trucks that are transporting by I mean it, it, the signs were just everywhere people at uh, I visited grottos and, and altars and, and churches and things like that and you, I mean you could just it was everywhere. It was everywhere. When you interviewed Yvonne Melendez, the health authority in Hidalgo County, um, you know, one of the things that, that strikes me is public officials must have felt abandoned there. I mean, I don't know how they avoid um, anger with Austin, anger with the governor. I mean, once the evidence starts coming in that reopening the state is having this enormous and disproportionate health impact. How do they make their voices heard back in Austin or were they not able to? 
No, I mean, these guys had to go on national television and, and plead their case. I think it was the health, the former health director in Stark County who went on CNN one night and basically said, hey, if we don't get resources now, if, if they don't start sending us help, we're going to have to start deciding who lives and who dies uh, because we can't we can't do this anymore and who we're going to try to save and who we're not going to try to save. I'm trying to remember the name of the doctor. I talked to him also for the story, uh, but it was Stark County and it was, you know, they needed helicopters. They needed additional nurses and, and doctors. And it got there, but it got there like three weeks later uh, than what they, you know, when the moment they realized that they were going to be overwhelmed. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the story of the Rio Grande Valley, too, is that it's always been neglected by the state of Texas. It's always been neglected by our country as a region that is rich in culture and people. I mean, I, I think we there is a, a a sense of the valley that isn't true. There are, you know, two million people who live down there. And it's, you know, it's cosmopolitan in some ways. It's robust. There's a lot of things going on down there. Um, part of the landscape that makes, uh, part of what makes the landscape so difficult in Hidalgo County, particularly, which was the epicenter, and I still think is the epicenter of of the deaths and cases in the Rio Grande Valley is that, you know, there, there are many hospitals down there, but they're all private and for the most part out of reach for many of the residents mm. who live there in what is the poorest region of the country. Um, so you have this weird uh, paradigm or, or sort of dynamics that are, that are taking place where you have hospitals everywhere um, and no one can afford it. That for the most part, they cater to uh, well-off, Mexicans who do come over the border for medical treatment for specific mm. kinds of treatment. You know, I, I I made this. I was talking to I think it was Melendez about you know this scenario. I mean, and there is a point, right? That if you're sick enough, no doc, no hospital can turn you away. I mean, you walk into an emergency room, right. they're going to take you. The problem was that so many of these families, uh, you know, knew about these costs. They didn't. They waited until it was too late to walk into an emergency department. And by then, you know, there wasn't much that doctors there could do for them. Um, there's very little preventative care outside of the, you know, federally, federally qualified clinics and some of the private clinics. Um, and there's a history of distrust in the Valley. Uh, this is a, a place that for many, 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 many centuries, uh, you know, they were abused by uh, biomedical science and trusted instead traditional folk healers to to sort of build up the safety net of well-being in that region. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, ascribe anger where it may not be, but I again, I don't see how those communities cannot feel uh, just as you've been describing. Um, you know, the sense in which the state has kind of abandoned them, and as you said, this is not some remote. I mean, it may be some rural areas there, but the population density is high. Are there other ways that um, sufferers, you said, going on CNN, are there other ways that they've made their voices heard there? Are there sort of activist networks? Are there unions? Who's advocating for them? Um, I think, you know, there there's, in terms of anger, right? I, I think if you talk to residents, they're absolutely angry. But for the politicians down there, the elected leaders who are there to advocate for their communities, it's a long game for them, right? Like they they have to think about, you know, calling attention to their situation while being able to ensure that those resources continue to come uh, and, and not be sort of openly critical of of the governor or of, you know, the state legislature. There, I mean, they, there are, they started, 
I think for the most part, it was the doctors and public health agencies who started sounding the alarm. Um, and I was like one of the later reporters to actually get down there. And the New York Times had done their piece. The LA Times had done their piece um, and, and a couple other agencies. I mean, down there, let me think about like activist networks. So uh, the Valley is very closely tied specifically to San Antonio because a lot of folks who do leave the Valley become professionals or end up living in, in the San Antonio area. And it's part of sort of like generally the South Texas um, community. So there, there was some communication, I think, between doctors in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, particularly um, sounded the alarm because they were asking for help to, you know, transport people out of the valley up into San Antonio and Corpus where they might have where they might have more space. And ultimately, that something like that worked out. The governor uh, helped, I think, facilitate where folks in Star County were being airlifted to a veterans hospital that was activated here in the San Antonio area. Let's talk a little bit about the situation of the border. And the kinds of, I mean, we, we sort of know the border is close. And, and in this administration, there's been an enormous amount of emphasis on the policing of the border, the hardening of the border, the militarization of the border, which on the one hand, I think people who may have not been down there reported it or know it like you do, uh, they might not have a sense of what exactly that means. So when you say that Mexicans with uh, coming north for medical treatment, for example, I mean, there's an enormous amount of commerce and transportation across the border on a normal basis. Yeah. Uh, so that's one aspect of this, which I, I wonder if you can describe how just how the sort of normal day to day life of the border has changed during the pandemic. And then I want to follow up and ask you a little bit more about how um, undocumented immigrants or others who may feel impacted by the Trump administration policies are faring. So let's start with like, well, the day-to-day -day life of the border. How has that changed? So the border is closed to non-essential uh, traffic. And so like the flows over, for example, there are, I forget how many bridges, but there are a bunch of bridges uh, thinking just in the Rio Grande Valley or even sort of the Laredo area, there are four bridges. I think there might be eight or more in the Rio Grande Valley. And these bridges consist of some of these bridges are specifically for, you know, trucks and, and commerce, international commerce. Some of these are pedestrian bridges where people um, move every day across either to go to school or to work. So if you if you are somewhat or you deemed an essential worker there, you can still cross if you're going to school, which I think at that time uh, there wasn't any school. But um, you can still cross for the most part with permissions on. I remember crossing early on. And what the, the Mexican authorities were doing, were taking, they'd actually take your temperature as you oh, as you went okay. across. Um, on the US side, uh, some officers wore masks, some didn't, but for the most part, uh, you, 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 weren't un, you weren't impeded uh, crossing over. I give you an example in El Paso, right? In El Paso Juarez, they were very tightly knit um, as economies. If you run, if you're a manager of a maquiladora on the other side, a factory that makes Levi jeans, for example, or some, you know, some kind of product that's consumed here in the United across the world, um, you still cross every day, right? Um, and there's fewer traffic. I mean, there's less, there are fewer pedestrians, but for the most part, things are carrying on in, in some sense of normality. Um, Laredo is, I believe, if not the first, and it, it is certainly the second busiest port in all of the country like car mm -hmm. parts, computer parts, cleaning products, all of that comes through Laredo. 
um, and up the I-35 corridor to the rest of the country. So when we, you know, we talk about the supply lines for Clorox, for Lysol right. products, that's where it's coming through. Right. Uh, so for the most part, that stuff has slowed down. It hasn't stopped. Um, as of, I think I did a story early on about that, like, you know, business owners were very worried about sort of a full closure of, of the border. And they were taking different steps to try and protect drivers. Um, like I think they weren't having uh, truckers, like they weren't dismounting from their trucks when they loaded and there are specific people who had to wear gloves and, and, and stuff to, to take the, the, the product down and then put it back on. Like it, they had sort of streamlined the process so that there wouldn't, there would be less contact, um, you know? Mm. So, in some ways, it's it like the border is uh, is working the way it would normally, just at sort of a smaller or, or fewer like scale. Um, and in terms of uh, migration, now that is has stopped completely. In fact, um, you're you if you're an asylum seeker, for the most part, you walking up to up the uh, pedestrian bridge and, and asking for asylum and, and beginning that process. Um, is not possible at all. In fact, if you cross illegally, for example, through the river, or you walk across whatever um, whatever means you do, in some cases they're using laws to expedite that process, you're immediately expelled back to, to Mexico. And for migrants undocumented um, <clears throat> who, back to this issue of people who might feel that they can't go to a clinic or seek care, I know that's a difficult issue to report on mm -hmm. um, just in order to preserve, you know, the kind of anonymity that people want and not put themselves and their families in some risk. But can you tell us what kinds of impacts you're seeing in, in the reporting you've done in this in this regard? Well, basically, apprehensions are, are down uh, fewer and fewer people uh, because they're able to. I guess I, I will take it back to where we were right before the um, the closure of the border where you had specifically, right, these migrant camps on the other side of the border in Matamoros, for example, which is the, the sister city on the other side of Brownsville, Texas. Um, I think sort of at the beginning of the pandemic, there might have been 2,000 families out, out there. I'm hearing that Glendale now it's somewhere near 1,100 families that live in, in tents, essentially, uh, near the levy uh, and these were folks who were either enrolled in the MPP program, which is the, the return to Mexico program you probably heard. These are folks who were legitimately seeking asylum, uh, crossed and got a um, basically a date in court. But with the pandemic, court, the courts have shut down. These are sort of makeshift um, DOJ facilities on the other side of the border where you basically go through the process of making your case for why. Um, you need asylum in the United States and the circumstances of, of what happened, you know, to have propelled you to that point. Um, and it was already sort of a, a dwindling hope for a lot of the folks who lived in those migrant camps because they had dates that were six to months to a year out um, from the date that they had arrived. So like there were people who back in January when I was there had been there already 11 months and had a scheduled day for like June. And then now we're in the middle of the pandemic, June came and went, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing on the docket. They don't know how long they're gonna be there. In some cases, people are leaving, they are going back home. 
or in other cases, they are crossing, they are risking and, you know, their, their safety to cross with the coyote um, and get across mm. the river that way. We've heard so much in the last few years about, um, you know, what ICE has done and, and the child separation, you know, policies and, and things like that. And, and I don't know right now, we've, we've had some discussions on COVID calls about and read some obituaries of um, Latinos who died in ICE custody. Most of those facilities are not in the valley, is that right? Are there still uh, uh, facilities where children are, are kept down there or has that all now been moved into other places? So they're all over the place. Uh, I, I think you're, those are family detention centers, like I believe right. it's, uh, I forget the name of Carnes or, or Dilly. I think there, there's one in uh, Pennsylvania and there's one. Yeah. I think there was some, uh, there was a dust up that immigration lawyers had reported that apparently at some point ICE officials or, or detention officials had asked families whether they wanted to be separated from their children uh, because of COVID uh, and, and have the children leave the facility. And it was sort of this fear that this was happening all over again. All over again, yeah. Right, that that was something that was happening. But it, ultimately, I don't, I don't think they separated any families because uh, they, they wouldn't sign that paperwork. I believe that's what happened. Um, there, but they're only, I believe they're, two or three facilities for families. For the most part, these detention centers hold adults. Um, and there've been a high number uh, compared to other years, right? But a, a high number of men and women who have died of COVID in those facilities. Immigration advocates tried really hard to get a lot of them out, especially those who are immunocompromised or who uh, present in this uh, cate vulnerability category in terms of health. Uh, in some cases, have been successful. I believe in most cases they have not. Um, and you know, it's a case by case basis thing for a lot of these inmates, especially excuse me, these migrants, some of whom are in detention because they have separate from the fact that they are migrants, they uh, have criminal records in some cases. So you know, I says they're having to judge each case sort of um, individually based on the, the dangers that that person presents to the community or whatever it may be, right? A lot of that process is opaque. We don't really know how they make their evaluations. We don't mm. know. Uh, they don't tell us. They don't give us access to the documents. Um, a lot of this stuff happens behind a wall that is very difficult to, to penetrate. Well, that was going to be my follow-up. If, if you wanted to report on those kinds of facilities, I guess before the pandemic, but especially now in the pandemic, to, to see how things might be changing in terms of how they're managing, is it just not possible to get clearance to go into those facilities? Um, it's really difficult. Uh, even attorneys have uh, problems and in, in are barred sometimes from going in. I, the, the way that uh, reporters across the country have been doing it is by having contacts on the inside. And sometimes that's through advocacy organizations, like I believe, forget the name of the young woman, but she's done terrific reporting out there in Ote Mesa in California. Um, I believe for the San Diego Union Tribune has been through these advocacy organizations who are sort of anti-ICE, anti-whatever, they are in contact in some cases with the folks who are inside and can uh, make phone calls and find out what the conditions look like or what um, 
what documents they're asking people to sign or what are the, the, the precautions that they're taking, whether they're distributing masks, that kind of thing, or what they're doing in the event that someone does test positive, like are they isolating that person or are they putting them into the general population? So the information that we have been getting has come through these sort of uh, these sources that are on the inside. Just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls and talking today with Arlis Hernandez, a Washington Post reporter about the situation of COVID-19 and Latinos in America, specifically in Texas. And I want to return to some of your reporting. This is a September 22nd article that, that came out. And I mean, it's a hard article to read. And I mean that as a compliment. I mean, it's it's it tells in a, in a very economical way, you get inside the lives of many different families that are coping with this pandemic. And I wondered if you, when one of the people that comes through so strongly is Jose Lissandro Oriano. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, no, Jose's uh, interview was, was super interesting. Jose is a uh, Salvadoran who lives in the Houston area. Um, and he uh, is on, he has TPS with a temporary protected status, which is a special status that I think is going to get, or has been or will be canceled soon for bunches of Salvadorans across this country. Um, but essentially he doesn't have access to health insurance. Texas is one of uh, several states that did not expand Medicaid um, and there are quite a number, uh, I think might be among the top states in terms of the percentage of uninsured in the pot. And he's one of them. He can't afford insurance. Um, and so he figured early on in the pandemic that he would save money just in case he got sick um, and sort of figure out what he would do. He works in a garbage truck. And so he didn't really have the choice to say, I'm just going to stay home uh, <laughs> during all of this. No, he had to go to work somehow got sick, was infected, um, and and reasoned that he could fight this on his own at home. And he used medicine from El Salvador that his family had sent him. He had uh, made these concoctions, these teas, uh, out of garlic and onion and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. These, like, these recipes that people would post on, on Facebook and on WhatsApp, which is the way that uh, a lot of immigrants continue to communicate with their family and friends at home is through WhatsApp. And for, I believe it was six weeks, uh, he he battled and lost 30 pounds, uh, lost six weeks of wages from work. Um, and he said it was a, it, the most horrible experience that he's ever had. I think the quote in that story that, that I remember him saying, and it just struck me to my brain um, was telling me you're going to die. And my heart was like, no, I gotta, I gotta keep fighting. You know, you, you've gotta fight this to survive. Um, ultimately he did. But, you know, he had people around him who didn't. It really, I mean, that line really struck me, too. And also your description that um, he couldn't get to the top of flight of stairs, that he was so incapacitated. But also he didn't have the luxury to, I mean, again, this is sort of this struggle. And we've talked with essential workers on COVID calls about 
about this, that um, this idea that you can just sit it out, if you can get up and get to work, you're going to go um, because there's no job security if you don't. One of the other topics in that article that really comes through is about the impact on multi-generational families. And I wonder if you could say that's, I mean, that's not exclusive to Latinos in America I and mean, multi-generational families and many different ethnic groups and parts of the country, but um, it does seem to be um, a more common characteristic of families, um, particularly immigrant families in throughout American history. And so can you take us inside some of the stories that you reported on, along those lines? Yeah, no, there are a lot of reasons why families, um, you know, decide to, to live together. Uh, sometimes the reasons are economic, sometimes they're just, it's a matter of support, right? When you, then there's small children in the family and you have childcare at home with mom, grandma and grandpa who are there. Um, and I think that one of the stories was with Jocelyn Hernandez and she lives in a household with 10 other people, uh, her brothers and sisters, her sister-in-law, her mother, father, and an aunt. And everyone in that family ended up testing positive for, for COVID except for the little girl, her niece. <laughs> and Jocelyn works uh, at, a, at a clinic that serves um, largely immigrant people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so she, you know, she thought she had, they had taken all the precautions that they needed to do. Uh, she was, she had to sign grocery shopper. Um, they all had, you know, their parts of the house where they all segregated themselves. But th there was one issue, which was like, there were three bathrooms in the house, but everyone kind of preferred this one shower, uh, this one working shower in the home. And all of them ended up getting infected. Her mother and father were hospitalized. Her aunt was hospitalized. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully, her mother and father sort of resolved that they were going to get out of there together. And they did. They did walk out. But um, I believe to this day, they're still suffering some of the, the effects of, of having gone through that experience. You also tell us about the Vasquez family, where there's a father and son caretaker arrangement there. And I thought that was, I mean, that transcends, and we're talking about Latinos, but it, it and it's such a relatable story because it transcends. It's a discussion of disability and parents. And I think a lot of us at this time have worried. We always worry about our parents. Our parents always worry about kids. But I mean, it's so acute because we can't get to each other easily now. You say a little bit about that very unique relationship and how it was disrupted. Yeah. Uh, so Gil Vasquez is uh, 40 years old, but he's spent his entire life in a wheelchair because he suffers from muscular dystrophy, I think it is. And so, um, you know, that for the most part, he's a positive guy that hasn't stopped him from pursuing his dreams. He was in law school at the time, you know, this, all of this began. Um, but the way that, you know, his relationship with his father is that his father basically is his arms and legs it, and does everything for him. his father. You know, takes him to school, uh, goes to classes with him, helps him take notes, um, and dedicated his entire life to to his son. Unbelievable, yeah. And uh, they were being very careful. At least they thought they were. And it, the only times his father had gone out was once to the car wash to vacuum his car, and another time to a radiology, uh, you know, exam that he had pending. And somehow, uh, Gil Vasquez Sr. contracted the disease, uh, wasn't even sure he was sick until he collapsed in the bathroom. And Gil Jr. was, you know, afraid that this was the last time he was going to see his, his dad and that, you know, a lot of the things that he was working on, including, you know, this goal that he had of becoming a judge, um, were going to get sidelined, that his best friend was going to, that he was going to lose his best friend, which is his dad, 
they they have a funny relationship. They're they're both jokers. They go to Spurs games all the time. They're they're, mm-hmm. they're fixtures of sort of the, the local sports uh, scene around here. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, I like when I finished writing the story, I wasn't sure Mr. Vasquez was going to survive. He was still in the hospital. Uh, and when we finally published, I called Gil Jr. to to check and see how his dad was doing and uh, was able to talk to, to Gil Sr. He made it back. He made it back because of his son. And he's he's recovering now. He's in, he's in recovery. Yeah. And he better, you know, get better quick because he's got to get back into the law classroom. He's got a lot of responsibilities. He's got a lot to do. When you do yep. these kinds of stories, I know it's, I don't know how to ask this question, but what do you want readers to come away from this reporting with? I mean, when I read these stories, I have so many different reactions. You want to take action. You want to see, it's a lot of the questions I've been asking you to like guide us through. How do we, how do we provide mutual aid? How do we awaken Americans to these injustices and inequalities what do you what do you want to accomplish with the this kind of reporting so i think you know i often get some pushback from from readers it's like why are you uh you singling out latinos aren't we all americans why are you doing this well because i want to point out in one way that that the effect is disproportionate and it's uh and there are inequities in place right but on the and the way that we told the story and the way that you with these anecdotes and these sort of intimate portrayals of what was going on inside families was to also send the message is like yes they're americans too and you can relate mm-hmm. to their experiences as well i think um you know because it's affecting I, I, what am I trying to come up with? I want people to understand that like the hurt is real though numbers are one thing right and and I had again some criticism there were like you know more than 36,500 Latinos dying is proportionate to the population but that's not the point right that's in the nation that's not the point it's the damage that is taking place in these families and if you understand how layered the consequences are for a lot of these families that hopefully it inspires compassion and more empathy and understanding between you know americans about what the real consequences are of this you know i didn't get in in that depth you know on the financial consequences but the economic and the mental health issues that this is going to provoke in a lot of families, but particularly Hispanic, Black, and Indigenous families, is going to be off the charts. Uh, you know, I talked yeah. to a clinic operator in Houston. She's like, I don't even want to start thinking about that yet because I know it's going to be bad. And um, ultimately, I want the message to be that what happens to our most vulnerable communities will reach us and some, the rest of us in some way or form. Like we're not disconnected from these things are happening in silos. I might report it, you know, by singling out, but I'm telling you, this is, this is coming for you too. That's um, powerfully said. And for the times that we're living in, in which the stigma that's been placed on Latinos as a as a matter of um, political strategy by the president of the United States is breathtaking. I mean, it's how he began his campaign, uh, and it's continued all the way through. It hasn't been only Latinos, but the idea of dividing Americans and stoking fear, and particularly using the border as a locus of fear, um, has been his stock and trade. At the same time, we have an election coming. 
And I know that the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign both have been trying to target Latino voters. And I, I know you weren't reporting on the campaign specifically, but it must be in the air there also. People are gonna have to go to the polls and decide are they going to stick with this administration or are they going to look for a change? People talking about that with you? In the border regions, I think particularly, these are also places that are historically historically vote Democratic, but there are, you know, there there tend to be more conservative uh, mm -hmm. Democrats than the, the rest of the nation or there are perhaps, you know, other Latinos who are part of the Democratic uh, base. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Cindy Candia, who's also in that story from the, the border region story, is is very angry, uh, and and she blames and you and you ask people then they blame the governor, they blame the president for for what is happening to their communities uh, because of the the lack of information. You ask the leaders, many of them Democratic of those particular regions, right? Because Houston, Austin, San Antonio, these are all sort of you know democratically led governments. Um, it is. It was the misinformation about what was actually happening with this disease and the way that this virus was spreading and the precautions that people needed to take that really uh, messed people up. I, there's a family in Dallas that I also did a story about that was in this place where they couldn't make decisions or they felt you know ill-informed to make decisions about how and when to take grocery trips or when you know to let their children do this and that because they were confused with the different messages that they were getting from their mayor, from their congressman, from their governor, from their president, um, and, and sort of figure out what, what was true and what isn't. I mean, disinformation, maybe more so than you know, any one person, any one political figure has been a killer in these communities. Just to remind pe people, we're talking to Aurelise Hernandez from the Washington Post uh, on COVID calls today. And you can get your questions in to YouTube live chat as always, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of disaster. You can get them up through Periscope as well. Um, I wanted to make sure we save a little time because I know you have reported on um, disasters in many regions. And so you must be keeping an eye on Puerto Rico because you've done some previous reporting there. How is the pandemic playing out there, what kind of differences do you see there from what you're reporting in the Rio Grande Valley? So early on, uh, Puerto Rico actually was, the governor of Puerto Rico took some of the strictest and strongest and, and acted very quickly to shut down the island um, and to get people to go home. Uh, the problem was that it was so strict that it was limiting people's ability to, uh, to, to live. And so you, you had hunger started coming uh, into, into Puerto Rico shortly after. I think I wrote a piece about hunger there. Um, and um, it, it, it was just, it, it wasn't a consistent message. And part of it is Puerto Rico, as we saw with Hurricane Maria, has a ill-equipped healthcare system for a crisis. Uh, they're just not ready. It's not, it's not funded where it needs to be. There are dedicated doctors and nurses and, and, and everything, for people that I met while I was on there during the island. The problem is the structure and the institutions themselves cannot, you know, don't have the capacity to treat a population that has, you know, very severe chronic illness um, and very little means to pay. A lot of folks are on the government insurance, but, uh, you know, for example, my aunt, uh, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican, my aunt is mm. a cancer patient and because she has La Reforma, which is the government insurance, 
but she has to wait weeks to get chemotherapy weeks that are like that threaten her life or to get an appointment with an oncologist because these doctors, there are very few of them. They, a bunch of them have left the Island um, in the last decade or so with the economy contracting the way it has been. So Puerto Rico, in, in some ways, I think the governor acted because she knew how vulnerable the healthcare system was in, on the Island. The problem was that it was inconsistent. Like at some point, even I remember like talking to my cousin about this, you know, there, if your license plate ended in a, an odd or an even number, that those are the days that you could be out and about to do your grocery shopping. Mm. Puerto Rico is also in a weird place because it's an island and most of the food and service and goods are imported. Therefore, you know, if things stop, you have shortages at the grocery store and that was happening uh, on the island. So um, I think they had a crisis over food stamps while we were down there. Um, the unemployment took weeks, no months to get to people. I think in, in the story that I did on hunger, mm. you had folks who had lost their jobs, one, right? Who were trying to apply for unemployment, could not get through the system. The system crashed uh, for many people across the island. Three, the stipends from the government, they were the last people in the United States of America and in, in all of it, including you know its territories to get the money. And so you you had people who for three, four, five months had not made a grocery purchase and were depending on the kindness of family and, and nonprofits for dropping off boxes at their homes with food. I mean, there must be a sense that it's just a continuation of Hurricane Maria. I mean, I, I know there still must be places in the island that have had continuation of problem with infrastructure, with unemployment. I mean, people, I mean, it's a variant of the question I was asking you previously about the Valley. I mean, how does that translate into politics? <laughs> well, you know, Puerto Rico's situation in particular is unique because it has this uh, strange relationship with the United States and that puts it at a, at a disadvantage in some ways and at, in a challenging position in order to get access to certain things like, you know, that Puerto Rico gets half the Medicaid dollars, Medicare dollars that a state does. It gets uh, grants for food stamps that are significantly less uh, than than the states, right? Like it, it, it's if you ask certain politicians on the island, they say it's unequal treatment, right? It's it's second class citizenship, and and you ask other people, it's colonialism uh, for them. That Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, and so that it, you know that lends itself to uh, this continuing sort of political controversy over its status and whether changing Puerto Rico status is, is going to either help or, or, or improve the, the situation with, with relationship to the United States and access to those, those federal funds. Um, I think that in Puerto Rico in particular, the governor, uh, well, she already lost her primary. <laughs> So she won't be uh, really, she was appointed, she, well, she, yeah, she was appointed post the ouster of the last governor. I was there for that too. <laughs> it's been a crazy time in Puerto Absolutely. Rico. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard to explain the politics of Puerto Rico because it, it is so nuanced and it's so complicated because it revolves around the question of status. The, par the political parties on the island are hinged to that status question. And for example, right. the party that's in power right now, the progressive new party, the PNP, they uh, advocate for statehood and they tend to be more aligned with Republicans here in the United States, or at least its leadership has been historically. Um, 
and they are the party of Rosselló, who was ousted by protests, who they have terrible, you know, polling numbers in Puerto Rico. But uh, politics is inherited there. If your family always voted for the state party, you're always going to vote for the state party. If you were, you know, for independence, very few uh, historically have been or still remain pro-independence. You, you're still on that wavelength. And so it's really hard to sort of predict where Puerto Ricans are going to go um, in this coming election for them uh, with all the upheaval since, since 2017. Just to um, ask a little bit more about Puerto Rico, and I guess this is probably also germane to the discussion in South Texas. I mean, you do have families that are, um, they have long, there's a diaspora underway. I mean, they could have, you know, members of the family in other parts of Latin America, in Texas, in Florida, in New York. Have you seen um, distinct patterns of coping with the kind of economic dislocation that the pandemic brought? I mean, if people are relying on money in Puerto Rico coming from New York and New York's economy shuts down or vice versa, I mean, just imagining these sort of diasporic economic lifelines getting shut down, I haven't seen much reporting about that. I mean, it, can you characterize that for us? That's a good question. I don't know specific to to the relationship between like New York and Puerto Rico or the diasporic communities. I know that there's been, particularly since Maria, the amount of money that the diaspora has sent to the island through various nonprofits in some in some instances to bypass the government because there's so little trust in, in the state government there or the, the local government has been enormous. Um, you know, I think I was able to do that story with the help of groups that were founded by members of the diaspora in Pennsylvania and New York who set up these programs to take to buy fruits and vegetables from local farmers and take it to people who are vulnerable in various cities across the the island. So I, I think, I don't think I've, I haven't documented it. I haven't seen anyone sort of collectively all the data of the philanthropy that's taking place. Uh, I mean, Puerto Ricans are very, very tied to the island. Um, and, and there are folks who, who left the island, who came to and settled in Pennsylvania and Florida or who go back. Like it's a constant thing moving back and forth. I know I've seen a report about in, in particular with immigrants here in this country that the remittances that uh, immigrants mm. send to, to home countries has actually skyrocketed, ironically enough, um, because, you know, in, in Latin America, they're suffering too. Uh, and in some cases, perhaps worse off than us. Um, so, so I, I mean, there's definitely a, a look at that. Specific to Puerto Rico, I'm not, I'm not sure. So we're almost up on time. I, I just want to get one more question in. It, it sort of ties up to a lot of the things you've been talking about and exposing inequality and the kinds of things that you hope readers will take away from your from your reporting. How hopeful are you that this is a moment in which some substantial change could be possible? I've been asking public health officials and people this kind of question about the health system and I'd like to get your your sense. And, it's, and if your answer is you don't see much, that's okay. I, I don't wanna try to paint an optimistic picture where it, where it isn't. But so many things in our society are changing so rapidly. Is it also possible that the status and awareness of the struggles of Latinos in America could be changing as well? I think it depends on how many people are moved to engage in the process, right? But <laughs> my experience, you know, being a, a local politics reporter to now being a, a correspondent, uh, it's 
you never get the engagement that you need from the community to be able to hold the, those in power, the institutions that, you know, uphold these systems accountable, right? Um, I, I think if more people are engaged in the process, are are there for the meetings, are there watching how these reform, uh, you know, movements and, and calls take place, that they go beyond just, and I'm going to use police brutality as an example, that they go beyond just, you know, outlying chokeholds and no-knock warrants, but to actually take a look at the entire, you know, system and the way that we prosecute, for example, drug offenses. Um, you need people in the room. You need to show up at, uh, at these state legislature hearings. You need to go to your local, you know, county judges here in Texas, uh, commissioner's courts meeting. You need to do those things. I think that's the only way um, that this changes anything. Uh, in terms of the healthcare system, I'm not sure. I think uh, public health officials have a pretty strong argument to make about, you know, the chronic underfunding of their departments and how desperately they need, uh, you know, state governments to step up, local governments to step up and take this more seriously so that they have the tools in place to be able to confront the next one because there will be a next one, um, uh, you know, Am I optimistic? I'm a journalist. <laughs> so I will watch to see how things play out. But my my limited experiences tells me that if we do see more people engaged in the process, um, you know, folks interested beyond, you know, sort of their life circumstances to get involved in their communities, that that there might be a hope that 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 things could change. Just a reminder that you can catch COVID calls every weekday at five o'clock and tomorrow rounding out what's been a really extraordinary week. I'll be talking uh, with my co-host. I'm really excited to have Felicia Henry back. She's previously been a guest and she's going to co-host with me tomorrow. We're going to talk about the case for a just COVID-19 recovery in Philadelphia. So please join us for that. And I want to thank my guest, Arlise Hernandez from the Washington Post for a really just a great hour. And just thank you for the reporting you're doing. Thanks for reading. <laughs> All right, stay healthy, everybody, and we'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.